If you're a fan of this podcast, you probably have an appreciation for the artistry in motion that a racehorse represents. We'll talk with an up-and-coming artist whose equine images will soon be displayed in a show you can attend. Plus, speaking of artistry, what to make of the first-ever Royal Ascot broadcast here in the States? It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. At the heart of why people still enjoy being around horses and horse racing is the beauty of these amazing animals. That's why where there's horse racing, there's also tons of equine art. So you can capture and keep for yourself not just the moments involving great racehorses, but the majesty of these magnificent athletes as well. Horse racing has long translated into the movie genre, with films like Secretariat and Seabiscuit bringing you the visually stunning scenes of these animals in full flight. But still images, photographs, and paintings can be studied, looked at for hours. The rippling muscles straining, the determination in their eyes. Artists have had no shortage of material with which to work in racing. But not even all artists approach horse racing the same way. Some have spent the majority of their careers in equine art or photography, like Barbara Livingston, for example. But Whitney Anderson is really a self-taught fashion artist from Alaska, one of the 12 states in the Union without horse racing at all. Whitney Anderson moved to Seattle, though, where horse racing does have deep roots. So, in addition to mermaids, polar bears, and, of course, fashion models, you'll see horses show up in her work as well. She'll be featured in an equine art show at Emerald Downs outside Seattle for three days, starting on July 14th. And we're pleased to welcome artist Whitney Anderson here to In the Gate. You've said that you made sense of the world through your art. Now, I would imagine that to be really good at what you do, it's not just a matter of see tree, paint tree. There presumably must be an underlying knowledge and appreciation for what makes your subject matter special and what your subject is expressing. When it comes to nature in general and horses specifically, how do you make those connections? Um, well, horses have always been my favorite animal since I was young. And whenever I choose a subject to do with art, it's always based off of a nostalgic thing from my childhood or something that still resonates with me until adulthood. And, you know, horses have always been that for me. And what I mean by that phrase, oh, I make sense of the world through my art. Well, basically, you know, I've had a lot of hard times and triumphs and Art has always been a therapeutic thing for me, and whenever I get lost in it, you know, after, I, I would usually go to it after, you know, I experienced something, you know, traumatic, or I was trying to push through something, and I would always go to artwork, and sometimes I would create my best works 
trying to make sense of, you know, uh, the hard times in life. And I, I think life is made up of a lot of hard times and that's what brings out the good things in life. You know, um, it, you know, it's the, uh, light always springs from shadows. I think, you know, there's always a light right around the corner, you know, the, the shadows of life that you're in. So that's how I've made sense of my life is through my art. And, and not to say it's a melancholy, you know, like medicine to help me. It's, it's not just a medicine. It's actually something really enjoyable. Like, you know, I, I do it when I'm happy too. You know, it's not just always when I'm upset. <laughs> so well, right. But I mean, like, you know, a tree is not just a tree when it's out in the real world. You know, everything has a soul, it seems. You know, every image, everywhere you go, there's a lot there that's subtly being said. What effect does growing up so close to nature in Alaska have in how you would create a nature scene or a horse scene versus how someone who might not have grown up so close to nature would do it? Well, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere um, during the summers. You know, I, I fished with my dad out in Alaska, and I, I was kind of embarrassed, you know, about it growing up. Like, I wasn't, you know, the typical kid that, you know, used to, like, you know, go on vacations where there are people, like, I would work on a fishing boat every summer since I was a baby, and I started, like, getting paid when I was 12 <laughs> a little bit. But, um, you know, that's what my family did, and we had just expected to work, and I think with my art, some people don't realize I'm an artist until I tell them. And, and then I've had people say, oh, I would have never guessed you were an artist. It's because I don't really come off as an artist. I'm really just a normal girl. Like, I, I don't really, um, you know, come off as that artsy type of person. Um, but I am very whimsical. Like, I have, you know, this artwork I've done, it, it spans different um, subject matter but, you know, it's all pop cultural. And I, I think that I, I just stand out from other artists in that way. Oh, also, like my, my work ethic, I, I get it from fishing and, and, and just like being an athlete. I, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life. So fishing on my family's boat in summer and being an athlete my entire life, being a ski racer, a runner, being the top of the nation, I can really hyper focus on art and you know, work on a piece for 40 plus hours. Whereas a lot of artists nowadays, a lot of artwork that you see, not a lot of time is put into it, not a lot of energy. And I put my heart, soul and time into what I do. So I think that's what sets me apart from other artists. Well, you certainly have done a lot of self-examination to where You've come up with the words big, bold, and fierce to describe your style. Certainly some athleticism in there. What do you mean by that? Um, well, when I came up with my website when I was, I think it was 19, so it's been over 10 years now since I've had it, I always knew that businesses had three words to describe it. You know, a business, you always see out there, like brands, businesses, three words to describe it. So I had, I wanted to come up with, three words to describe my art and it was big because I like to paint big or draw big and then it was bold like the colors were bold and the concepts were fierce so big bold fierce artist Whitney Anderson yeah. joining us here on in the gate now in addition to mermaids and polar bears and fashion models and horses you also have other sports art in your portfolio including Derek Jeter and Michael Jordan 
They don't seem to fit real well with mermaids and polar bears and fashion models and horses. What made you branch out to other sports? Um, well, I just, you know, we live in the age of the Internet. We just know a lot about people. Um, like I said, as a pop artist, I am fascinated by so many different things. And, um, you know, being an athlete, I, I've always been attracted to, you know, other athletes and what they do and what I can take from their sport and their mindset. Um, so growing up, you know, obviously everyone knows about Michael Jordan and there's just like this power that comes to me when I replicate powerful people and powerful things like horses are very powerful to me when polar bears, you know, like I really do things that are nostalgic to me. Like I said, that word is very important to my, um, to my art complex. And also I think it has to do with my lifestyle indirectly. Um, uh, my mom took me, uh, traveling all across the globe from the age of nine to 16 years old. I've been to over 55 countries. So I've seen a lot of culture. I've experienced a lot of things. I've seen a lot of darkness. I've seen a lot of light. Um, I've, you know, been, I'm a commercial fisherman's daughter. I've, you know, worked on board, you know, a sea vessel out in the middle of nowhere for, you know, half my life. And, you know, I, I just really, I have a wide variety of interests. I'm doing drawing, acrylics, and collage work. So that's what you see on there. You write that you've traveled to 45 countries so far, of which I'm more 55. than... 55. <laughs> countries. I'm more than just a little jealous of that. What sort of <laughs> cultural identity do you feel when you see horses in different countries? Because I'm sure some in our audience might think if you've seen one horse on a farm, you've seen them all. Um, yeah, well, I was I was always excited. Like our first trip to Europe when I was um, uh, when I was nine, um, you know, I got excited about the uh, the French Riviera horses. It's like there's like this herd of white horses that are only uh, native to that area. I think they're called the Cameroon horses. And you know, we um, we went out to a stable there, and you know, we rode on those. And then when we were in Italy, we rode on some horses there. But yeah, whenever we were, um, you know, in a country, I always wanted to look up, you know, where the, you know, where the horses were and if there was a place to ride, um, because that was always exciting for me. And also the movies, um, you know, like Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, Horse Whisper, you know, for any girls that um, are listening, that those are major, major movies, you know, for horse lovers, so... Those are some of my favorites. So tell us about the equine art show at Emerald Downs in July, of which you'll be a part. Um, yeah, I'll have two pieces there. It is in Auburn, Washington. It's a music festival, and um, they have this show every year. I think it's been running for um, over 10 years now. But yeah, it's a, it's a juried art show, and um, looking forward to it. It'll be my first time. And then I also have um, a solo horse art show in Bozeman, Montana, coming um, July 22nd. So that's my first solo show, and I'm really excited about it. The Emerald Down Show goes for three days starting July 14th. We'll also have a slideshow available on our website, ESPN.com, on the horse racing page, where you can see some of her work. Whitney Anderson, thank you so much for being here with us in, on In the Gate, and best of luck going forward. 
Thank you so much, Barry, for having me. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, what to make of entire race days at Santa Anita vaporizing? And how good is this year's three-year-old crop now that some of the Derby also-rans have come back to win races themselves? Stay with us. Welcome back to In the Gate. Horse racing, at least in this country, is known to progress forward only slightly faster than the pace of natural evolution. The Earth is roughly four and a half billion years old. It takes just a little bit less time for thoroughbred racing to modernize. This year, for the first time ever, American TV viewers really got the feel of what it's like to be at the Royal Ascot meeting just outside London. The glamour, the royal family, the hats, and of course the world-class racing. It didn't hurt that two of those 30 races over five days went to American trainer Wesley Ward. Lady Aurelia nearest to us. Muthmere beginning to stay on behind those. Lady Aurelia down the centre in the white and green colours is going away at the end. Lady Aurelia and John Velasquez, oh, she's one by two or three in great style. Fortunately for us, it just so happens that we have an American-based journalist in the house who knows a lot about racing overseas. Amanda Duckworth, whose duties include working for the International Horse Racing Federation, is back with us. What impact, Amanda, do you think being able to see Royal Ascot has had on America? The fact that it was shown on broadcast television for the first time, as opposed to a TVG simulcast of GBI, and more American trainers than in recent years have brought horses there. I think it can only be a good thing. And usually people, especially horse racing enthusiasts, it's such a visual sport. So to actually be able to see the races and the quality of horses that come, but also the amount of pride and pomp and circumstance that Ascot puts into the event they put on is, it really is unlike anything you'll see elsewhere, which is why they build themselves as like no place else. But I think having it on mainstream TV is huge just because you get more people interested, more people see it. And when you see it, it becomes real. It's not just a story you read. When it's a visual thing you want to be a part of, it encourages you to go. And and when more trainers are going and there are more horses you recognize and more names to cheer for, it it makes it better. And I think it's a very nice thing to see because if, if you look at, say, the Breeders' Cup, some of the most beloved horses are the horses that come over and and beat us at our own game. The Goldakovas, the Ouija boards, they become beloved because they go everywhere and try really hard. And and it's nice to have American horses going overseas to do the same thing. It, it's good for international racing as a whole because racing, as big as the world is, it's a very small world inside of itself. And then... But it's also good for the American brand for American horses to leave our country and go prove that we can hold our own in in top quality settings like Ascot. Well, not just Ascot, but as you know, it is Royal Ascot. And the presence of Her Majesty (laughs) certainly makes a big difference in the impact of it. But she's 91 when she's no longer involved. It doesn't seem like her family is all that fired up about racing what do you think happens to royal ascot then well it's important to realize that royal ascot is has been around for quite a long time and it's not just because uh queen elizabeth ii was interested you know the royal procession's been going on since the 1800s 
and it's part and parcel of it. And I think there's just a respect and understanding for it. Now, the fact she hasn't missed a Royal Ascot meeting since her reign, will that happen after she's gone? Who knows? That's hard to say. But Royal Ascot in and of itself has been going on for hundreds of years. And so although she's very beloved and a huge part of it, I have a hard time believing that, say, the Royal procession is going to stop. Now, whether they they stay and watch all the racing, that might be different. But like I said, the Royal procession has been going on since the 1800s. So it seems unlikely that that's just going to disappear. It's, it's a pretty beloved tradition and it's a big honor to be asked to be in one of the other carriages. And it's just something that has always been done and it's part of Royal Ascot. So it's hard to believe that that would just disappear when eventually, you know, she's no longer able to go. Our good friend Amanda Duckworth has spent quite a bit of time overseas via the International Horse Racing Federation and others to whom she serves. Let's get back stateside, though. Twice so far this spring, Santa Anita in California has eliminated entire racing cards. They've just vaporized. What do you make of the state of racing in California, the impact of entire race days being canceled and stakes races going with smaller field sizes? Obviously, no one can feel good about that. It's it's not good when race cards get canceled because they can't fill them. Everyone can handle when it's a weather-related thing, but when it's because the horses simply aren't there, obviously, that's a level of concern, and clearly, some adjustments need to be made at Santa Anita. I think the clearest sign that they're very aware of it beyond the fact they've had to cancel races is that Tim Ritvo has moved out there, and he's the chief operating officer of the Sharonic Group. And he's a pretty sharp guy. So for them to send him from Florida to California to to work on things, I think is a very clear sign that they're aware something needs to be changed and adjusted. And how they go about doing that is a trickier question to answer. But at least clearly the Sharona group is aware that this is a big problem. It It looks bad on paper. It's bad for horsemen. It's bad for the horses. It's bad for the betters. It's it's not a good situation when they can't fill a card or when they have to run it run a race with an extremely short field. So not a situation anyone can be proud of, but at least clearly they are making a a pretty big effort to to fix it by sending him out there, I would say. Well, one of those small California fields gave the third place finisher in the Kentucky Derby a chance to revisit the winner's circle. Battle of Midway, asked to get serious now by Prout, extends his lead effortlessly over B-squared. It's now three lengths in the favour of Battle of Midway coming towards the 16th pole, and the affirmed stakes will prove easy pickings for Battle of Midway. In addition to Battle of Midway, two other Derby starters, Irap and Gervin, finished 1-2 in the Ohio Derby. So with three different Triple Crown race winners and now other derby starters coming back to win a couple of races. Here's my question as we move towards the second half of the year. Have any of the Triple Crown race winners and derby also rands who have become winners since then impressed you enough to think they'll make a difference in the three-year-old picture and the classic division in general? In the classic division in general, I, I feel like they have a pretty hard road to travel because assuming Arrogate stays sound, I don't believe that anyone can touch him from the three-year-old crop but it's horse racing you never know what's going to happen and I actually I was impressed with McCracken he also came back and and won at Churchill and so I think it might be a case of 
we got a little bit spoiled with American Pharaoh in the case of, you know, he was, he was a very special horse. And then the next year you have Nyquist who, even though the Derby was kind of his last hurrah, he was as far as winning, he was the juvenile champion coming into it. So there's excitement about that because that doesn't happen. And what we might have this year is just a case of it's a nice crop without a standout because you could argue mastery was going to be one, but who knows if he would have trained on, there's no way of knowing. And so it might be a case of where they just keep beating each other up at different races. But the fact that they're coming back, that they're winning, that they're competitive is a good thing. And hopefully, you know, one of them keeps progressing, but as, as it is right now, I, I don't know that I would look at any of them and think they would have a chance against Arrogate on his best day and even on not his best day as long as he was still competitive. So it'll be interesting to see, and it's great that they're coming back. It's great for the sport that they don't just run in the derby and disappear. You know, it's And maybe they're running in spots where they belonged all along, and it's it's a lot to ask these horses to run in the derby. It takes a special horse to win it. And so maybe they'll all benefit from time and, and, and growing up a bit. But it's definitely a good thing that they're back and, and being competitive. Well, there may not be a standout in this group, but Amanda Duckworth always stands out on the occasion. She joins us here on In the Gate. And thank you once again so much. Have a wonderful trip to Japan. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Our thanks to Amanda Duckworth and to Whitney Anderson. The three most recent times that I have seen live horses race, I wound up being kicked off the premises. These were quarter horse performances, each happening in Florida, where a rule linking racing and gaming must be appeased. When you enter any sporting venue, you're on private property, but the event is naturally open to anyone. And unless the event has a rights restriction, like a professional stick and ball game, we at ESPN might shoot anything under the sun. But when we showed up at Gretna, at Oxford, and Hialeah, our brand name carried very little clout. The elevated platform we rented for Gretna was towed away, and a security guard yelled, ESPN, get out! We're doing an investigation of horse racing in Florida with no individual or personal axe to grind. But though within the law, these track owners have guilty consciences, perhaps they're worried about what else we'll find. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.